the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. And the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. And so from that last miracle, because after that Jesus will go into dialogue and teaching with his disciples, there's a differing opinion or interpretation of who Jesus is. Some marvel and say, this is marvelous, this is amazing. And then the exact same instance, others, the Pharisees, say, this is evil, this is wrong. And it would seem to be simple enough to say that Jesus does good things because he is good. All of these miracles that he's doing are, from the face value, good. He's healing people, raising dead people, liberating bound and oppressed people. And then the Pharisees would actually think to say, it is by demons that he casts out demons. This mixed conclusion that is between those who marvel after Christ and those who mock Jesus Christ, the conclusion is that Jesus did good because Jesus is bad or Jesus did good because Jesus is good. See, it's going to happen later in Matthew 12 where they're going to get into this dialogue with Jesus about him casting out demons by demonic powers. And Jesus says, you missed the whole interpretation. What I'm doing right now is a demonstration that the kingdom of God is at hand. It has come to you. I am binding the strong man. I am taking back what Satan stole. I am loosing those he binds. And I don't do that by his power. He would never use his own power to unravel the very thing he seeks to have, which is God-like power. Which, of course, is the same thing you and I seek for naturally at our default position every day, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, that we would seek to be as though God. And so the kingdom of God is coming to claim back everything that rightfully is the Lord Jesus Christ and all of the power and authority he has. And notice in this story, there's nothing really dramatic here. Demonically bound man can't speak. Jesus says, you're free. Then he speaks. It's one or two verses. There's nothing dramatic. He has such definitive power. And this is the, the difficulty I, I feel, and I don't know about yourself, of reading these stories and saying, Lord, where is that now? I want that still. And it is here. I want to see your redemption in all of life. I want to see it in greater measure in my life, in my family's lives. There's such definitive power given to Jesus that He truly is the Messiah. He has the Holy Spirit without any measurely boundlessness. And that He can just bind and loose and speak and heal at a whim. And so therefore these two blind men come to Him. There are two blind men, we're told, that are following him. They follow him. And they say, presumably this is a repetitive refrain for them, they say, have mercy on us, son of David. And what's so remarkable about this is that he goes home. We're told that Jesus enters the house. 
presumably back to his place where he normally would live at at this time, which is in Capernaum. So, these blind men, two blind men, from a distance, they're blind, having to be led or guided in some way, are following Jesus in an entourage of some of the crowd or his disciples. Presumably on the periphery, most likely in the back, screaming out, have mercy on us. And then of course they say it on purpose, they say, son of David, because they want to communicate to Jesus that I know who you are. And um, not many people would say that. There are not many people who call him son of David in the Gospels. Those who call Jesus son of David in the Gospels are the ones who are outcasts. They are the little ones of society. When Jesus is referred to as son of David, it usually comes from the mouth of blind men as today. Those who are lame, those who are dumb, that is can't speak. Those who are Gentiles who are not privy to the knowledge of all the messianic prophecies of what it means that Jesus is the Messiah. They still call him the son of David because they understand what that term means. And even children in the Gospels, little children, refer to Jesus as the son of David. Now David was a very powerful king in the Old Testament. And he did something that a lot of Americans idolize, which is success. He had tremendous success. His kingdom abounded. He won every battle. And something like that is happening with Jesus. Everywhere he goes, he just wins. He just binds and heals. Almost effortlessly. They were looking for a king. And the reason they grab Jesus' attention here is that it's the blind one who sees that this son of David is not here to rule and reign with physical corporal power. They see him ruling and reigning with remarkable spiritual dominion. Hence, all the demonic encounters in the Gospels absolutely astronomically disproportionate to the rest of the Bible. Nowhere in Chronicles or Kings or Genesis, there's no frontal attack of what you would say demonic encounters, except for when Jesus Christ is here doing his work. And so these blind ones come to him and say, show us mercy. We can't see. And we know that you are the son of David. Not just a king who will come rule and reign with corporal power, which is what everyone wanted out of Jesus. But we know that you are the son of David prophesied in Isaiah. The one who is given the Holy Spirit in even greater ways. Because David, if you remember this, perhaps, David did wonderful things, but he could never build the temple. They wouldn't let him build the temple. God said, no, you cannot build this temple for me. Your son Solomon will have to do it. And the reason God gives is he says, you are a man of blood. That you have conquered many and killed many by the sword. 
Therefore, you are precluded from building a temple for me. Why? God's making a clear distinction that his king, his true Messiah, Jesus Christ the Lord, the temple of God, the one who actually does tabernacle the presence of God incarnate, that he's the king and he did not come to slaughter and to slay, but to heal and to redeem. And so even back when you read through David, you realize he's not the one. He couldn't even build the temple. He had blood all over his hands. And so here are these blind men saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. And this is the remarkable thing, that you would think we are prone to projecting ourselves onto Jesus. In the sense to say, you and I, we love in varying ways and degrees. But not like him. Not like him. He loves so much more than you and I could even dare to dream. And when you ask Jesus to do something for you, he would want to do it. Like he would actually want to do that for you. That's, the, that's like one of the biggest take-homes of this story. He just wants to. They appeal to him on no other grounds except for his mercy. Just show us mercy because you're good. Just because you're good. The exact irony of the Pharisees' interpretation. He's doing all this good, therefore he has to be bad. But they're like, no, you are good. Just turn around and heal us. And he is that good. But you and I live in a world in which we have to understand what that means. Jesus does good, he says clearly, because he is able to do good. He asked important question to follow. Do you believe? This is your question this morning. Do you believe I am able to do this? If you don't if you don't live in an a area of spiritual life in which you anticipate God to do miracles, he might and might not, but he can. He can do amazing things. Amazing things. When you were a child... Wasn't the world magical? Childhood psychology, everything is new. Playing with a wrapper, a candy wrapper, and hearing the sound and the crinkling of it. When you watch a child small enough, that's an alien encounter to them. The whole world is foreign. Everything is magical. It's Narnia. And Jesus loves little children. He wants our faith to be faith like little children. That if he would ask us the question, do you think, do you believe I am able? And their response is, yes, I believe that you are able. 
We believe that you are able. In Mark 9, there's a similar question that's given. There's a man that comes to Jesus about his son who is oppressed. And he comes to Jesus and he says, If you can do anything, have compassion and help us. And Jesus paused right there. It's very important to him to reiterate the point where Jesus said, If I can! Exclamation point. And the ESV decides to translate it that way. If I can, the guy comes to Jesus and says, if you can do anything. Who prays that way? Let us never pray that way. Lord, if you can, if you, if you could, if, if you would just you know, give me a minute of your time and listen. If you could do this. Jesus stops him on the point and says, if I can do this. If. Who do you think I am? What is your faith in me? And then he responds, and the man says to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. I came here for a reason, because I know something about you, but I'm not there yet. Help my unbelief. And Jesus said, all things are possible for those who believe. Well, obviously, that text can't mean what that text means, because that's not how the world works. Well, of course. All things are possible according to God's wisdom. For those who really believe, God has a plan. Last week we said he's literally going to raise every dead corpse alive. He is able. And from here to that final destination he wants, there are many other things he will do. Because he is in the business of redeeming the world. And those who go out to see that redemption in remarkable ways actually have to believe he can do it. Actually sensing that there is a problem. That there is real spiritual corruption and death. And that it is an absolute miracle to see someone's eyes spiritually opened. Even remotely close to how these men experienced it in their physical bodies. Jesus also does good not only because he is able, and we have to hear this, not only because he is able, he does good, because he is good, because he is willing to do it. And if you're anything like me, this is the tripwire. This is where I pause. This is where it is challenging. We go to scripture. Luke 5. A man with leprosy comes to him. He saw Jesus, he fell on his face and began begging. And he asked a different question. He said, Lord, if you are willing, you could make me clean. If you are willing, you could make me clean. Not if you are able. Will you though? I know you can, but will you? Will you move on my behalf? If you ever come to Jesus Christ for true conversion, it is nothing more than as dramatic as this. That you would actually have to say, Lord, I can't just simply take in the information of the gospel and in some way say, I just believe in Jesus. Like, he has to transform you. There is a certain experiential element to knowing God. Taste and see, the psalm says, that the Lord is good. Do you know the goodness of God? Well then, don't just simply say, well, I, I said a prayer. Go to him. 
Lord, will you show me yourself? If you doubt your salvation, and I say this with all confidence because I'm a pastor, and I know mostly all of you, and some of you I've had private conversations with about doubting the assurance of your salvation. Well, don't just go to sleep on that. Go to him. Lord, will you please show me yourself? Confirm for me that I am your son or your daughter. Be gracious to me. These blind men, blind men followed him. If you're looking to see more of him, keep shouting out. Son of David, show mercy upon me. They followed him all the way back to his house. And that means Jesus actually ignored them for that long. It was on purpose. Why can't one prayer do it? Why does God cause you to travail in prayer? Why does God like it when you're persistent in prayer? Why does it seem as though he ignores you a little bit? Like he did with these blind men. Because he's working in us an eternal weight of glory. Because he's working out your salvation. He wants you to seek him. He wants you to lay hold of him. He wants you to come to a deeper, firmer conviction that he is able and that he is willing. Jesus does good because he is willing. But even after he healed that leprous, leprous man in Luke 5, he told the man immediately, tell no one what I just did for you. Again, tell nobody. Why? If Jesus was aiming to be a great doctor and to heal the world of all his diseases, he again is doing a terrible job. He doesn't want anyone to come to him for miracles. Now don't go tell anybody that I can do miracles. <laughs> What's he doing? And he goes to a desolate place after he heals the man. The balance of truth. The balance of truth here is the difference between the ability and the willingness of God. It's like these cables. Sometimes you remember we had cables from here to here and we'd have curtains for various projects or VBSs. Now, I'll be honest. I hated putting those up. I'll do it every time with a smile on my face. They're very annoying. Because, it, for those who aren't aware, behind these flags, there are these uh, bolts into the studs of the wall. And there's these strong cables that go from here to here. And we hang up curtains for various things, uh, setting up a stage or whatnot. And it's, it's just hard because you, there's a certain tension strength to them. And if you don't twist the edges, it's not quite long enough. And you're literally playing with a few millimeters. And up there on a stool, like pulling everything I have in my lower back. I'm like, oh, get, get, and I just barely get it on the hook. And then when that's there, it's like a guitar string. It's very tight, right? That's ten, tension strength. One side to the other. They're pulling. It's like you just made it. You got it. Now this is, this is a beautiful analogy of how our lives work. It's tension. That's what faith is. Faith is confidence. Confidence, assurance, conviction in all the truths of God. In the moment you live, that's different. That's different than just reading the Bible. That's different than just knowing a book or two. Living this. Not just reading these stories and be like, wow, Jesus did some miracles 2,000 years ago. Tension between ability and willingness in every area of your life. And faith rests between these two. In a comfortable chasm of uncomfortableness. That's where our faith belongs. Between knowing God's absolute ability and not entirely knowing everything in his will. 
And that's where your faith rests. That's the difference between the two edges of a sword. Like they, people always say, is truth is walking or on the very thin edge of a sword. One side wrong, the other side wrong. You're right in the middle. You have to have that tension between to be true. Well, the truth of actually living a life of faith is in one hand knowing God's absolute power to do literally anything. And then knowing your life and circumstances and what is his mysterious will. What will he do is a separate question entirely. And faith, like these blind men, consistently pursue that. To say, son of David, have mercy on us. When your marriage is having problems, Lord, I know you can fix it all right now. But how and when and where and why? Will you? You have to just rest. Be absolutely convinced. Jesus' question isn't important. This is the only place in all of the Gospels where Jesus goes this far. And he says, do you believe I am able? And then to make sure there's no confusion, he responds by saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. So Jesus is deliberately making a point that it is because you had strong conviction that I could do this, that I did it. Implying the opposite, that if you did not have this strong conviction, I would not have done this for you. It's actually very clearly laid out. Belief is an important condition. Like a real strong conviction. Matthew 13, 54. He goes back to his hometown, teaching in the synagogue, and everyone's impressed. It's his hometown. They're like, hey, Jesus is wise. Where do you get this wisdom? He's powerful. Where do you get this power? Isn't he the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother Mary? Aren't his brothers and sisters here right now? And it says that they took offense at him. And what happened is, as he's going through teaching, it says he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Jesus can do miracles whenever he wants as far as God's, he's walking under the Father's wisdom right now to fulfill his ministry. Not, Jesus is not going to take a vote when he resurrects all the dead. He doesn't care if you want to be resurrected or not. He's just going to resurrect you. So he doesn't need your permission. He is absolutely able. Full power. But without faith, he's not very willing he could do no miracles there because of their unbelief. They just simply wouldn't rest in that tension, in that conviction to lay hold of God. And because they didn't, they didn't have it because they were offended by him. They didn't honor him the way he was, didn't actually believe in who he was, and therefore they didn't get to see who he was. The whole idea of non-Christians saying, I could never believe in Jesus because I've never seen Jesus do these miracles or anything in my life. It's like, yeah, you have to believe first. And then he'll show you other things. Faith precedes knowledge in a lot of ways. You have to trust in his word first. And he'll give you even more. This determination and unwavering resolve that Jesus is able has to be balanced. Because there are many reasons why Jesus would not answer. For example, there's a lack of faith that was just said. If we don't have faith, Jesus will not. But also, it's not just that. And this is where people get into errors. This is where you lose the truth of being right in the middle and falling on one side to the other. 
The idea that it would be our lack of faith that God would not heal us or do other things in our life, of course, is a lie. It's a prosperity gospel in the most, in the most, and this is a personal thing for me over the past few weeks, talking with various people. I had a friend who was seeking to do mission work in Kenya, and I spoke with him. He wanted prayer and support, and I asked him a few questions. Coming from a Pentecostal background, I said, do you believe in the prosperity gospel? He said, well, how would you define the prosperity gospel? And I said, how about you define the prosperity gospel for me? And I'll tell you if you believe in prosperity gospel. And he believed in prosperity gospel. And it was a terrible meeting. It was like two hours long. And it didn't go well. And needless to say, I'm not supporting him. <laughs> believe it or not. Believe it or not. Because it is so serious to fall into this air. That Jesus would always want to heal. That there is always health and wealth. Other reasons Jesus doesn't answer our prayers because we're in sin. We simply need to repent. Very clear examples of that in scripture. Or our persistence. These blind men followed again and again. In Luke 18, there's a persistent widow who comes and comes and comes. And Jesus likes that. He's doing that to you. Your prayer is changing you. God's using your prayer, your consistence. He's putting you in this tension. He's making you try to hold the strings together. And it seems like it's almost opening up your chest. You can't hold any further. Lord, I know you're able, but I don't know if you're willing. And sitting in this awkward unknowing of faith is brutalizing to me. That brutalizing of not knowing exactly is what's shaping you, forming you, making you more mature, making your convictions run ten times deeper down to the basement, basement, basement level of your soul. He's doing this on purpose. That awkwardness of holding it together is intentional. You don't desire the healing could be a reason. James clearly says, James 4.2, you do not have because you do not ask. If you approach the Gospels, if you approach the power of Jesus, if you approach the book of Acts, and you actually think that that was all just for then and there, you're never going to ask for God to do anything in your life. Anything remarkable where Jesus would actually, the question would have any import to say, do you believe I'm able to do this? If I would ask you, Jesus, are you able to rise the sun tomorrow? Well, yes. You always do that. Because that's every day. Jesus, are you able to do this thing in my life? Are you able to do this thing? To me, seems very, very hard. What Jesus calls a mountain, the Hebrew proverbial expression of a very hard thing to move. And Jesus says, faith can move mountains. That doesn't mean anything in your life, but it does mean something that's very, very hard and you don't think should actually happen. Like, you know, I don't know, blind eyes opening or something. He can do that. He can actually do that. And believe in your life that he's doing that from time to time. Actually, that's a live option. It changes the whole way you view the world and yourself. Most importantly, though, there are many other reasons, but one is Jesus does not answer prayers sometimes because it's not according to his immediate will, his providential will. No healing. Galatians 4.16. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you first. Paul wrote to the Galatians, he says, You know because I was sick that I came to you and preached the gospel. God kept Paul sick. God wanted Paul sick. Paul was sick. For the greater purpose of preaching the gospel to a new region. And this is the tension of will. What is his superintended will? What is his wisdom? What exactly does he want in my life? Does he want me to die of cancer? Or does he want me to get healed of cancer? That's the tension of faith. You hold on to that. 
like these blind men, calling out to him, Son of David, have mercy upon me. That is where faith lives. Jesus is able and he's willing. But we know ultimately this, that our outer man, 2 Corinthians 4, is wasting away and our inner man is being renewed day by day. The closing remark is to look how Jesus always wanted people to never tell who he was. Which is absolutely baffling. His words to them, like his words to them after healing blind men, is do not tell anybody what just happened to you. If Jesus was so concerned about your healing, it wouldn't make sense. If Jesus wanted to get everyone here to have a big medical convention, that's not how you do it. He said, don't tell anybody. He, d- Jesus deliberately ignored the men so that he could get home to Capernaum. And it says in the text that they were in the house when he finally turned to these blind men and gave them his undivided attention. Jesus waited until they were in a private place inside the walls with no one around to do a quick healing and say, now get out of here. Because here's the beautiful thing. He loves, he just wanted to heal them. But he didn't want anyone to know because they didn't want anyone to misinterpret his mission. The Messiah's mission. The sermon series. What is his mission? Why would he not want the whole crowd to be there? Because his mission is to save the world. To save the world. The tension is that all of God's power and all of God's will was actually spread out on the cross by the hands of Jesus Christ that he held those two in perfect unison that there is nothing in the wisdom of God that the father would ever want to slay the son Jesus prayer was shot down have you ever had a prayer where the answer was no Jesus asked to not have the cup he asked to not have the cross That God's absolute power would be there to literally pull him right off of that cross. That he would never have to experience any of that. The whole power was there, but there was no will from the Father. The Father said, no, I do not want you off that cross. I will not take you off that cross. You must drink this cup. Jesus knows if you are dying of cancer and not having a healing. For he was dying man too, looking for the same healing. And on the cross, take that image away this morning. There is the hand here, and there is the hand here. And Jesus lived as a man like you and I, under the superintention of the Father, not able to do all according to his plan and wisdom. To know that the Father is absolutely powerful and able enough to rescue him from this persecution and the cross. And know that he will not do it. And this son of man, son of God, son of David, died faithfully on that cross so that you would live. That all of God's miracles, all of God's power is geared toward absolute love. Absolute love. That praise God his prayer was answered no. So that as it says in 2nd, 1 Corinthians 1.20, that all of God's promises for us now are yes. 
Because his prayer was no. And now you and I are called to live like this. To live in the tension and to trust God like children. He could do amazing things. You and I could see revival and reformation in our generation. I mean, we really could. God could open up eyes of so many people. Have you ever read church history? But James says you also have to ask for it. And actually believe he'll do it. Actually believe he could. Actually show up to a prayer meeting. Like that could happen. Or it could not. But the reality is that Jesus knows that tension. And he died right in the middle of it. By the very tension between his own scapula. As he put his own spine on that cross and did not take it off for you. For you and me. Father, we lift up. We lift up your son. We humbly worship him now. Lord, we gratefully bow before him. We thank you that you have allowed us to live in this tension. That you are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. That the struggle that we experience, the discontent within our souls, knowing you are able to take away everything, yet you will not take away everything, is found in your Son. His redemption, his example... His faithfulness to the end, Lord, give us this strong resolution. Let us believe you for your great promises and that you actually can move mountains. You actually are able to do amazing things in this church, in and among us, Lord. Give us great love for one another. You are, ab- you are actually able to make our blind eyes be lifted off from ourselves to one another. This is a miracle, Lord. That we would actually love like you love. Not be so inward focused. This is a hard thing to do. But you're able. Lord, I ask you to do that with us now. In this very moment. In Jesus' name, amen.